Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, and I am I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. And I've forgotten to wire up, so forgive me a quick wardrobe malfunction here. There we go. So we'll be looking this morning at Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. You'll find it printed in your bulletin in toto uh, in, on page 9. And there's also a kid's translation there on page 9 for you as well. Boys and girls, I do try to speak directly to you. Uh, at different parts in the sermon, so I do hope you pay attention. I do hope you find that uh, translation helpful. Uh, students, I will also try to speak directly to you, but let's just own the reality together that whenever someone middle-aged tries to be relevant, it's going to be cringy for us both. But it, you still may find the kids' translation helpful. So as, as I begin a tenure here, what I thought might be helpful is kind of just going through some fundamentals of what a church is about. So I kind of have in my view three main fundamentals that once we get the gospel— that we kind of rest upon. Last time we looked at real hope, and today through this Jeremiah passage, we're going to look at a rescued community. So before we get to the text, let's not, let me kind of give you an introduction into it. So Jeremiah served at just an amazing time. Um, God's people had lost God's word for over a generation at this point when he started his ministry. Uh, any type of vibrant worship was only a memory. The temple was closed. No one ever went in there. And then near the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, the temple was actually reopened, and they found the books of Moses in there, we're told. We don't know exactly what that was. Some scholars think it might have been the book of Deuteronomy, but we just don't know. But they found this, and they started reading it, and all of a sudden, some people in leadership started to have like a revival in their hearts. They were so excited because like suddenly they had the real deal instruction manual. Okay, they'd been living with like, you know, Ikea pictures only or Legos pictures only. And now they had words in their instruction manual and they were stoked. And, the, and Jeremiah was excited. So he went around this preaching tour all around the country and nobody cared. <laughs> Very much like our neighbors, they didn't find God or his word attractive at all. And that's right where this text picks up today with Jeremiah engaging in an odd object lesson to kind of show us the challenges of his ministry at this point. So if you would, would you please stand as together we look at Jeremiah 13 verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a linen loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. Let's pray together. 
Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in speech, that you've actually given us words that we might know you. So we pray, Father, that even now you would send your spirit, open this text up to us, take us deeper into Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So one of the things I like to do just for the worship team and for the staff and their preparation and for my own preparation is to provide a theme of what the sermon is about. So today's theme is printed for you in your bulletin, and here's where we're going to try to go today. That we help rescue our community when we show off God's beauty. So let's jump right in this text. God has a plan. God comes to Jeremiah and tells him to do this weird object lesson. He says, go purchase a linen loincloth. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the words loincloth. But what comes to my mind is an ancient pair of tidy whiteies. Thankfully, I am not going to preach a sermon about underwear. Hebrew is not English. This is not an undergarment. This instead would be something flashy, something that you can't ignore, something worn around the waist to get attention. People were supposed to notice this thing. This is like to be noticed. In fact, the fact that it's linen here. Whenever you see details like that thrown into a narrative, they're important, indicates that it's fine quality. You know, lots of people at the time were kind of like Jethro Bodine. They'd like wear a rope. But God says, no, no, you're going to go get a linen loincloth. This, and don't dip it in water to degrade it. Make it crisp and clean and flashy. It's meant to draw attention. This is beyond functional. So Jeremiah wears this thing for a while. And after he wears it for a while, God, God tells him to go down to the river bury it in the rocks, and leave it there for a time. So Jeremiah goes down, leaves it there in the rocks, buries it. Then he goes back much later and digs it back up. And verse 7 tells us that it was spoiled, good for nothing. This flashy, decorative belt sash thing was useless. It was no longer pretty, nor could it keep his robe together. It's no good. Then God says something truly extraordinary about his own people. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. It says this, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. See, this verse tells us that just as that linen sash went around Jeremiah's waist and was noticed, so too God intends for his people to be around him. What an incredible metaphor. Now remember, this thing that Jeremiah was wearing at the time, it was practical, keep your robe together, and pretty, make it linen, make it noticed. You know, all of us have those lounging around the house clothes, don't we, right? Where function is way more important than how they look, right? They may have holes in certain spots that you would never wear in public, but they're comfortable. You love them, right? You lounge around the house. They're great. Practical is what matters. But then there's the clothes if you're going to go out, right? Especially if you're going to try to impress somebody. You want something that makes you look good, right? Something Something that makes you feel good about yourself. And so if you have a particular outfit that doesn't make you look good, You don't wear it, right? Which is why all of us, men and women, can go to a closet full of clothes and go, I have nothing to wear. Because we don't get the jazz feeling from those outfits, so we don't put them on. So are you hearing what this text is throwing down? God says in verse 11, he wants his people to be one of his favorite outfits. 
something he wears to get compliments. Now, in case you think I'm pushing it, let's go to the text. I'll prove it to you. Look with me again at the end of verse 11. It says, God wants to wear his people. Why? Quote, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. You know, every culture has certain aspirations of success, certain aspirations of purpose, certain aspirations of meaning. Those four things were the heart's desire of this ancient Near East culture to which Jeremiah was writing. To be a people meant to have a family. A big family was a sign of blessing and status. To have a name meant that you would be remembered after death because of your life. To be a praise is literally, literally the word here for song, meant that you were so valued, you were so important, you were so well thought of that they made up a song about you. And then finally, the word for glory. This is not the usual word for glory found all over the Old Testament. Rather, this is a different word that's used most often, not for glory, but for beauty. And it's actually summing up the other three words. In that culture, the ultimate compliment was for someone to look at your life, everything about you, and see something beautiful. You see, God, grabbing that, then God says what? God intended that his people, that they were so valued by him that he wanted to show them off. The surrounding nations were to look at Israel and to look at Judah and to say, their God is beautiful. Because he was wearing one of his favorite outfits. Oh, dear flock, do you get what that means? That means that the people of Midlothian, our non-Christian neighbors, should interact with us and walk away going, their God is beautiful. See, here we get this amazing picture of the heart of the Creator. Here we see that God rescues people because it makes God beautiful to others. God rescues because it makes him more beautiful. Now that may sound kind of creepy or selfish if you're paying attention, but boys and girls, let's see if we can help the older people figure this out. Look at your verse 11 at the bottom of page 9 there, okay? Here's how we put this for you. Just like you wore that belt and it looked good on you, so too I want to wear my people. They are supposed to be my family and I want to show them off. They were supposed to make me even more beautiful, but they refused. Boys and girls, have you noticed that mom and dad like to take pictures of you with their smart device? And then as soon as they take that picture, what do they do? You know what they're doing, right? They're posting it to social media because in this day and age, if a tree falls in the forest and it's not posted on Facebook, does it make a sound? They want to put that on on social media. They want people to see you, right? You know why? Because just like God People tend to show off what they love. And mom and dad love you, boys and girls. They want people to see you. In fact, other people think well of your parents when they see you doing something neat, something cool, or just being happy. Other people look at Facebook, they look at Instagram, and they go, oh, that is just so beautiful. Like, and that's what God says here. That just like mom and dad do for you, boys and girls, our God likes it when others look at his family, his people, the church, and they see something beautiful. Like, see, for all of us, now that might sound a bit off-putting, maybe. If it does, it's because we have lost the concept of beauty in our culture. Beauty does not mean pretty. Beauty does not mean pretty. 
It's much deeper. It's much more profound than that. When we use the word attractive, we get a little closer because beauty is about being drawn towards something. It's about something that resonates deep in your heart. It's about this intense longing. That's beauty. See, God's plan for his family, God's plan for us is that together with him, we'd all be Instagram worthy and get likes for him. Now, when I say that, some of you immediately, that voice in your heart, he's like my little golem. You probably have him too. Not you. You're not beautiful. God is disappointed in you. And that voice goes on to list your failures and your shame, right? Because why? Because as good as everything I just said sounds, as good as God plans sound, deep down we know that God's plan is spoiled. So in the text, Jeremiah takes this nice sash and he ruins it because that's a reflection of what God's people in particular and humanity in general have done to ourselves and to God's plan. Look with me at verse 10. It says this, is this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. That's hardcore. God tells Jeremiah straight up, my people are good for nothing. Junk. I mean, you read this text, you might go, "Um, God, that is not how you win friends and influence people. We don't lead with that when talking to our neighbors, do we? Hey, how you doing? Oh, I I just got back from church. We found out how no good we are, and you're no good too. Yeah, don't don't do that. Okay, that's, that's not work. Why is that so hard? Because our culture deep down refuses to accept that there's something innately wrong with humanity. Many think that, well, if we could just alleviate circumstances, if we could just take care of justice and equality, then humanity, people, would be better. The the famous poet W.H. Auden from the early 20th century, he actually abandoned the Christianity of his youth in the 1920s, traveled all around, and in the 1930s he found himself in Germany. And upon returning from Nazi Germany, he actually went back, retook up the Christianity he had abandoned because he looked at, at what was happening and he himself said that he had no resources for telling what was considered the most advanced culture of the day. He had no resources in his worldview to tell them that that rising anti-Semitism and hate was wrong. But Christianity did have such resources. And so he goes, I'm going back to what explains what's wrong with humanity. See, Jeremiah is one of those places we go to see that humanity is spoiled. The people in Jeremiah's time, verse 10, tells us that would stubbornly follow their own heart. It's the idea of running life on your own terms, not submitting to God's instructions, being the God of your own life. That sounds like our culture, doesn't it? That sounds like good church folk. Sounds like me. Boys and girls, and some students, you haven't really heard of W.H. Auden much, have you? You, you, don't, you don't have an Auden coloring book at your house, probably. But you have seen and heard what Jeremiah is talking about right here. From that modern philosophy of, philosopher of our day, Elsa from Frozen. What's she famous for? You know it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So I can let it. I'm not going to sing. How many of you want to stand up and sing it right now, right? Yeah. I will do what I want to do 
what makes me happy, what feels good. No one can tell me how to live my life or define me. That's how our culture and us, let's be candid, miss God's intentions and become spoiled. Our culture, see, is rooted in the promise of the enlightenment, of enlightenment humanism. It says, through rationality, we can not only define reality, but we can find destiny, we can find purpose on our own. And a couple centuries on in that project, and we are still waiting for that promise to come about. All right, stick with me here. It's going to get a little thick, but stick with me. So, the philosopher Martin Heidegger, one of the big key guys of this Enlightenment movement, says that we live with this sense of being thrown into the world. Now, just in case you didn't spend Friday night sipping sherry and discussing the roots of postmodern philosophy, um, here's how you boomers have actually interacted with Heidegger. Jim Morrison while still a student at Florida State, was messed up by Heidegger and his concept of throneness. And he was also messed up by the poetry of Matthew Arnold and others. And so when he formed the doors, he put this concept of throneness all over their music. If you want to turn back to the reflection section on the front of your bulletin, I put a, a quote there from their song, Riders of the Storm, and he's quoting Heidegger basically. It says, Into this world we're thrown." Like a dog without a bone, an actor out alone. Who knew that you were getting a big dose of Heidegger when you're out there singing the, with the doors, right? It captures like this exhausting directionlessness of life in a world where God's plan is spoiled. Okay, boys and girls, probably not listening to much Jim Morrison, I hope. You know, well, let, let, let me help you kind of grab onto this. Students, too. So imagine a world where you actually get to go back to school buildings. I know, fairy tale, but just imagine that world existed. And imagine if you're actually in this edifice called a school, again, some point maybe, please, that you're the new kid in school every day. And so every day you don't know exactly where to go. You don't feel comfortable. Every day you're not exactly secure in where you're supposed to be. And every day it never gets better. You're always this insecure, weird, what am I supposed to do? That's thrownness. That's what it means you kind of just are in life and there's no instruction manual and you don't know what to do. See, this rootlessness, this, this restlessness is why when we see something beautiful, you thought I'd forgotten, we're going back, when we see something beautiful, we tear up because we long for it in this restless world. We don't know what to do. We crave it so badly. C.S. Lewis said that this craving is actually a key factor in proving God's existence. I put this for you on the, on, in the reflection section as well. He has this famous quote about this where Lewis says this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, that's the reaction many of us have when we encounter beauty. How can I long for and miss something I've never tasted before? What's that about? Unless... That is some sort of pull of the creator towards who we really are. That we know there's a plan and we sense that we're spoiled and we want it to be different. It would be fair at this point in your chair if you're sitting there and you're thinking, why is he belaboring this point? Why is he talking about Heidegger or whatever that is? Because we Christians have forgotten what it was like before we were rescued. I'm reminding you of how your religious neighbors and non-Christian friends think. They may not quote Heidegger, but they live in his sense of thrownness. God has put us in our neighborhoods as lifeguards, but we have forgotten that our neighbors are drowning. And I'm trying to remind you. 
As Jeremiah shows us here in verse 11, beauty is one of those life preservers we can throw to them. Because verse 11 says humans were meant by God to connect with beauty. To actually enhance the beauty of the creator. So every time we encounter beauty, Christian or non-Christian, we experience homesickness for a home to which we've never been. Our neighbors feel it and can't explain it. We feel it and we can. Because Christianity tells us what? That humanity is broken. That it has missed out on God's plan to be part of his beauty. And so we long for it. We're homesick for it. See, but Christianity doesn't just diagnose the problem. Christianity provides the cure. Because when God's plan is, is ruined and spoiled, we see that in Christ, God's plan is restored. Maybe like me, you grew up in a legalistic church culture. We know all about being good for nothing and spoiled, right? Don't raise your hands, but if you're like me, I have been called good for nothing. <laughs> Recently. Anyway. And so we think that the way to get out of this is to do what? Try harder, right? Do more. We've got to impress God so he'll be nice to us, right? You know, so clean yourself up, live right, whatever that means. Wear a suit, pray in King James English, be really moral, be really opinionated about those who aren't moral. And of course, the biggie, live in shame at how bad you are at being good, right? What I just described is not Christianity. For those of you who grew up in it, I'm so sorry. Because Christianity uniquely puts the solution not as our sweat equity, but as rescue. We get the life preserver thrown to us when we are drowning. The Christian word for it is grace. This odd Jeremiah passage teaches the idea that we get rescued partly through beauty. Remember verse 11, God's plan. The word glory is the word for beauties. This is based in the text that God's plan is to make people beautiful. Many of you have heard of the, of the uh, 18th century pastor, Jonathan Edwards. You've probably read that terribly out of context, slanderous um, excerpt from Sinners in the Hands of an angry, angry God, as if that sums up his whole person. It's not. He was actually one of the best theologians America ever produced, and he organized Christianity under the concept of beauty. Edwards looked at the Christian life with the idea of orphans and rebels rescued and made beautiful by the beauty of God. This is the sinners in the hands of an angry God guy. You know, like the over the spider, over the fire, if you read that? No. Orphans and rebels rescued and made beautiful by the beauty of God. That will rid you of your shame. That will resonate with our neighbors. Because it's when we embrace the gospel, it's when we see that we don't have to earn God's love, but that in his mercy, while we were sinners, God placed his love on us through Jesus Christ. See, in the gospel, the beautiful God makes us beautiful too. So remember, verse 11, we're supposed to make God attractive to others. But verse 10, we're spoiled and selfish. We can't do it. So when we hear that God's gracious plan for us is that we, Christian sinners, transformed by the gospel... That we are made beautiful by God so we can then show off how beautiful he is. Our stubborn hearts pop up in verse 10 and want to reject that truth. We live in verse 10 and won't get to verse 11. We wallow in shame from our lack of religious performance, don't we? We hear that voice that says, you're not beautiful, not you. Your internet history alone shows you're not beautiful. See, but even in our shame, even in our ugly 
even in our being no good, our stubborn hearts are melted by the beauty of God's grace because of what the rest of the Bible adds to Jeremiah 13. Namely, that when God's people failed God's plan and spoiled ourselves to be that which makes God beautiful, that Jesus himself became the beautiful sash for us. That Jesus Christ, the Prince of Heaven, the beauty of God himself, spoiled himself to make us beautiful. That Jesus gave up his beauty and glory to live among us. He died a sacrificial death to heal us. And just like Jeremiah's sash, when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock for many days, but when he came out, he was not spoiled and good for nothing, but beautiful and glorious in his resurrected righteousness and beauty. And then clinging to him as a sash clings to a person. Because in the gospel, we don't get Jesus into us. We get into Jesus. He is the one who has earned salvation. And by grace, we are united to him. And we get into Jesus so that in the gospel, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We are now beautiful, wrapped in Jesus. See, deep down, you want to be beautiful because you were made for it. Here in Jeremiah, the Creator says that He wants to rescue His people and make them beautiful, enhancing His own beauty and promising that one day, someday, in Jesus, He will bring about a completely beautiful humanity. That's the promise. I know it sounds like a fairy tale. I know I should say, and they all lived happily ever after at this point, because it sounds like that, doesn't it? But this concept of humanity being beautiful is so powerful that even our culture can't run from it. In fact, in many ways, our culture embraces it better than the church does. You know, when non-Christians talk about things like social justice and equality, you realize they're actually expressing their creaturely desire for a beautiful humanity that the Creator, that the creator promises. If the Bible's true, you realize, if you've looked at the end and see, you know, the butler didn't do it, but instead Jesus wins, and if you look at that, a world is coming, if it's true... Well, there will be no injustice. There will be no inequality. We will all be equal at the feet of Jesus, casting our crowns before our Creator in worship and adoration and fulfillment. We were hardwired for that, whether we know Jesus or not. If the Bible's true, if He really is our Creator, that is our future. And so when our non-Christian neighbors talk about things like social justice or equality, instead of getting defensive and angry because we come at it from maybe a political standpoint, we should come at it from a theological standpoint and say, oh, that is a creature expressing a desire for what the Creator has promised, and they have no idea how to get there. But I do. Oh, yeah. I'm a lifeguard in my neighborhood helping people who don't know they're drowning because I've forgotten they're drowning. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to throw you a life preserver when I hear you talk about those issues. Or how about this one? Students. Okay, the older people have no idea what this is. Students, you get this. Ageism. Body shaming. Those words didn't even exist when I was a kid. That our culture has outrage over those things? You realize that's a rejection of a Darwinistic evolutionary survival of the prettiest and strongest mentality that most of us grew up in. I mean, a concern for body shaming actually is a recognition by our culture of the innate dignity and beauty of every person. Now, they can only assert that 
But Christianity comes and says, no, you were created in the image of God, and that image demands dignity. In fact, it's so valuable that when you were spoiled and good for nothing, God himself assumed that image, became one of us, and spoiled himself to make you beautiful. That's a basis for dignity that our culture says, whoa. That's how our culture looks at us and says, man, your God must be beautiful. See, Christianity provides the resources and the reason to make humanity beautiful. It's what we all want deep down. And the rescued community of Jesus, us, the church, we get to be a foretaste of that coming, rescued, beautiful community we all want. Now, what I just said is one of those things that gets the good, affirming Presbyterian grunt. (laughs) But in that affirming, don't miss the mandate. If Jeremiah 13 is true... And it's applicable to us. If those things are true, then God has put Sycamore in Midlothian to display how beautiful and attractive he is. So that our socially aware, woke neighbors will taste that beauty and long for the gospel to be true. Because we help rescue our community when we show off God's beauty. That beauty is yours for the taking. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we long to be made beautiful. And we long to be set free of that voice of shame that is so loud. So Father, in this moment, would you make your voice of truth louder than the voice of shame? Those of us who know you, Father, who are your adopted daughters and sons, would you even now overcome that golem voice of failure that tries to get us to deny the gospel? Would you take us deeper into the cross of Christ and see how beautiful he is and how beautiful he makes us when we are his. And Father, we pray that for those who are listening, Father, who may not know you, we ask that you would be true to your word. You said if Jesus Christ is lifted up, that he would draw all people to him. So we ask that even now you would do your work of salvation and drawing people to yourself. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.